we'll be reading from Luke chapter 1, verses 57 to 80, um, from the ESV. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his old prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Super, thank you very, very much, Maz, uh, for reading for us uh, from this, uh, for this morning. If you do have a, a Bible with you or a device with a Bible app on it, let me encourage you, please, to keep that open uh, over the next few minutes as we think about it together. Uh, before we do think about it for a few minutes, I'm just going to pray uh, and to ask for God's help. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you for uh, the children and young people from whom we've just heard We thank you for the child of whom they've just told us, Jesus, the light of the world. We ask that you'd please help us now as we spend a few minutes thinking about him, to have ears to hear what you would have have us hear, and hearts to respond. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, I wonder how you feel about new things at Christmas time. Some of us uh, quite enjoy newness and novelty and trying new Christmas foods, Christmas experiences. You might be the kind of person, for example, who has jumped on the Elf on the Shelf bandwagon that seems to have exploded over the past few years. If you don't know what that is, count yourself lucky. Um, It is where a toy elf is arranged in various hilarious positions around the house each night after getting up to some mischief, uh, all to be discovered by children the following morning. And by this stage in December, you might be remembering why you decided last year never to do it again. Uh, You've made your bed, you now must live in it, I'm afraid. Uh, But some of us are that way wired, aren't we? We like to keep things new and fresh. But lots of us aren't. And not by accident, but by design. 
part of the joy for many of us of celebrating Christmas is the traditions. This time of year is about the familiar and the nostalgic, about remembering the past. And even the story itself, the Christmas story, is perhaps a good example or illustration of that. We're used to hearing familiar verses from the Bible at this time of year about swaddling cloths and mangers. We're used to singing familiar words that we perhaps rarely use at other times of the year, words like begotten. And when else in the year do you use the word hark? We tend to be drawn towards the old, towards the comforting, perhaps, at Christmas time. And yet this morning, the author of one of the accounts of Jesus' life, a man named Luke, well, he isn't going to let us get away with Christmas comfort, at least not in that way. We're going to see that the Christmas story itself, which is a very familiar story, I guess, to many of us, it actually signals the coming of something new, the dawning of a fresh new start. And we're just going to spend 15 minutes or so thinking about that before we sing it to conclude our service. Let's think about that firstly under the heading, A Newborn Whose Arrival Signals a New Start, verses 57 to 66. Now, naming a child can be a bit of a fraught business, mainly because a name isn't just a word, is it? People feel very strongly about the name given to their child. And we have personal experience of that in my family. When my grandmother was born, my great-grandparents decided between them what name to give her. They would call her Helen. They were both very happy with the name. And so my great-grandfather was dispatched to the registry office to register the birth and to get the birth certificate sorted out. Only, on the way from their home to the registry office, he had a change of mind. And so an hour or two later, he came home proud as punch with a newly minted birth certificate, a birth certificate for the little girl that he has decided to register not as Helen, but as Nellie instead. And uh, you can imagine that resulted in, um, uh, let's uh, just say, a slightly tense discussion uh, when uh, my my great-grandfather got home. But that kind of conversation, well, it generally is the kind of conversation that you keep at home, isn't it? A disagreement about a choice of name. It tends not to be the sort of thing you want to broadcast to the world. And yet that is just what Luke does in Luke chapter 1. He records a conversation, a, a disagreement in fact, about a choice of baby name. Just read that with me again from verse 59 of Luke chapter 1. On the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. They would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. See, the practice in Zechariah's day wasn't to go to to a registry office to register uh, a birth and a name. But to have a sort of naming ceremony, if you like, on the eighth day after a child was born, the same day on which a Jewish child would be circumcised. And the name that Zechariah and Elizabeth were expected to give to their little boy was Zechariah. That was the custom, the tradition of the day the child would be named after his father. And yet instead of Zechariah, they decide to name him John. And they do that, notice, against what sound like protests from the other people who were there. Onlookers try to persuade first Elizabeth and then Zechariah to call the child Zechariah, 
all to no avail. And that might sound like the, the kind of story you would find vaguely interesting if you were a part of that family. But it seems a tad strange for Luke to give quite so much airtime to it. To what is ostensibly a, a fairly private disagreement about a baby's name. And yet there is a reason for Luke giving it so much attention. Luke tells us about the new name because that new name signals a new start. A second chance. So you might remember if you were here a couple of weeks ago that Zechariah had been met by an angel, the angel Gabriel. Gabriel had brought him a message from God and he'd promised Zechariah that his aging wife would fall pregnant with a child and told him that, that when she did, they were to name him John. And in response to that promise, to that, to, to that encounter, Zechariah refused to believe. He didn't trust the angel and ultimately... He didn't trust God. And as a result of that disbelief, Zechariah lost his voice. It was a mark of, of sort of temporary discipline, perhaps even a mark of, of judgment on Zechariah. And so we, re, we rejoin that story in verse 57. We're nine months down the track. Zechariah has been unable to speak all because he refused to believe. But just notice what happens when Zechariah does take God at his word. When he gives this child the name he's meant to give him. Verse 64. Immediately, Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. Zechariah can speak again. And that, that discipline, that, that judgment even, well, is brought to an end. And that goes some way towards explaining why so much airtime is given to this disagreement over a baby name, I think. Because you see, despite having disbelieved God, even when God was speaking through a supernatural being, an angel appeared to him. Zechariah, it seems, is nine months later forgiven. Is given a, a new start, a second chance as his voice returns. Now, you still might be wondering why any of that matters, why this old man losing his voice and then being given it back nine months later matters to people like us 2,000 years later and a long, long way away. Well, it really does matter. And it matters because it's a snapshot of what God was about to do, not just for Zechariah, but for everyone, including each of us here. And we see that as we read on to what comes next. Let's think of that under our next heading, through a new but long-promised rescuer, verses 67 to 75. Now, one of the, the near-universal features of new parents is that they tend to be fairly obsessed with their little cherub. I have license to say that because I am one such parent. And if you don't believe me, let me invite you to log into a social media account at this time of year where you will see wall-to-wall -wall photos of, well, let's be honest, slightly gormless-looking little ones no earthly idea what's happening to them, meeting Santa Claus for the first time. And parents are standing in the corner, cooing over their little ones, nursing a significantly lighter wallet, usually. Now, that obsessiveness, well, it can be a bit uncomfortable for, for everyone else after a certain point. Just imagine if, after the birth of a newborn, though, 
A new parent were to spend their time cooing not over their own child, but waxing lyrical about another baby. That wouldn't just be uncomfortable. It would be, well, a, a bit awkward, maybe. Strange. Perhaps a bit unsettling. And yet, on the day of this family celebration in Luke chapter 1, marking the arrival of Zechariah and Elizabeth's new and unexpected miracle baby, that's just what Zechariah does. He spends his time talking about another baby. Now, that seems like quite a strange thing for Zechariah to do, but there is something in particular about that baby that he thinks makes him special. Just see if you can spot it with me as we read through those verses. Zechariah says, firstly, that God has, verse 68, visited and redeemed his people. Now, when you redeem someone, you buy them out of slavery. That's a, it's a freedom word, a freedom idea. Not only that, God has, verse 69, raised up a horn of salvation for us. A horn is a, a symbol or a sign of strength and of power. He's raised that horn of salvation up, Zechariah continues, verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and the hand of all those who hate us. People are, verse 74, being delivered from the hand of our enemies. Can you see the common thread in what Zechariah is celebrating? He's celebrating another baby because in that baby, God is launching a rescue operation. He is saving people from their enemies. Now, who or what were those enemies? Well, we have to lean over into the last little chunk of Zechariah's prophecy to find out. Look with me again at verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Zechariah is waxing lyrical over someone else's baby because in that baby, God is acting to save people even people like you and me, by forgiving them of their sins. Now, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, well, I wonder what you make of all of that, of the idea that Jesus came not just as an example, but as a rescuer. And not only that, of the idea that that, that rescue, that second chance, is for you. See, I'm aware that for some of us, it might sound like, like quite an antiquated, quite an old-fashioned idea that people need to be saved from their sins. Even the idea that such a thing as sins exist might sound a bit old-fashioned to us. You might think of sins as a, a sort of failure to follow, a fairly arbitrary list of rules written hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. But actually, Zechariah is here to help us see that sin is a much, much bigger problem than that. Remember Zechariah's problem. He refused to believe God. Even when God sent an angel to speak to him, he wouldn't believe what he had to say. And that is one angle on what the Bible calls sin. A refusal to take God at his word, thinking we know better than he does, ultimately rejecting his plans and patterns for our lives. And that is something that we are all guilty of if we reflect honestly. And that guilt has consequences. Again, Zechariah illustrates that. Left to our own devices, like him, we're all in trouble. Our relationship with God is in pieces. And all of that means that we need this forgiveness, we need this second chance, just as much as Zechariah did. 
if we are going to know this God, if we're going to know peace with this God. And all that explains why Zechariah is cock-a-hoop. Because that second chance, it is here. Or rather, he is here. He's arrived in a person, in the one who came to defeat that enemy, to defeat sin and all its consequences. And as we read on in Luke's account of Jesus' life, we find out that the baby would do that by taking the consequences for our failures on himself, on the cross. Now, whatever you think about that news, that message is not something we can ignore. And that's the point of the final few verses in our Bible passage this morning. This news will be made known by a new prophet of rescue, verses 76 to 80. At the end of his announcement, this, this prophecy, Zechariah does finally turn to talk about his own boy, about John. And in one sense, we've already seen this morning that John was not going to follow in his father's footsteps. He wasn't going to take his father's name, Zechariah. He'd have his own name. And yet in another sense, John will follow in Zechariah's footsteps. Because just as Zechariah is obsessed with God's coming rescuer, well, so will John be. Zechariah says as much as he speaks about him. Verse 76, And you, child, says Zechariah to John, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John was a forerunner to Jesus, not just in the sense that he'd arrived before him, but in the sense that he'd tell people what to do with him, how to respond to him. That's what Zechariah says, isn't it? He'll give people knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of their sins. And in one sense, that takes us full circle. Remember, Zechariah's problem was that he wouldn't take God at his word. He wouldn't receive knowledge from God. He dismissed it. And the question that's being put to each of us, I think, is will we do the same? Will we respond to his message about the new thing that God was doing at Christmas? Will we respond to the message of of a chance for a new start, a second chance with God? How do we do that? Well, by trusting in this baby, in this rescuer, Jesus Christ. Now, if you've never considered that before, I'm not asking you to take my word for it. I'm asking you to consider the claims of the Christian faith from the eyewitnesses. You can do that by reading one of the accounts of Jesus' life. We've got copies of those accounts downstairs for you to take away with you this morning. If you would like, we would love it to give you one of those to read in your own time. Or maybe you could come along to the course we'll be running in the new year. It's called Hope Explored, and it'll be a chance to think about all of that in a bit more detail. We would love it if you want to come along to that. Perhaps you are a a Christian already this morning, though, and you're wondering what you ought to do with any of that. Well, you might remember that if you've you've been here over the past couple of Sundays, one of the big purposes, the big outboxes of Luke's whole account of Jesus' life is certainty. His aim is to give his readers certainty about the Christian faith. And Zechariah gives us that certainty in a couple of ways. Firstly, certainty that the good news about Jesus really is good news. News of a second chance, of a fresh start with God. 
If you have trusted in him, he has rescued you. He has made you right before a right and a perfect God. And that is just wonderful news. If we're ever tempted to grow bored or blasé about what Jesus came to do, Luke, I think, wants to grab us by the shoulders and tell us this really is the best news in the world. That's one line of application. But it also has a line of application to you in that this good news is good news not just for you. It's good news for the world. That's why so much airtime, I think, is given in Luke's account to this second Christmas baby, to John, the messenger who would bring that good news. And I wonder if we always think of it like that, as though the good news about Jesus is good news for the world. Because our culture doesn't always treat the message of Jesus as though it is good news, does it? If you ever speak to people about Jesus, it's often treated as though it's bad news, or perhaps as though it's irrelevant news. And over time, we might, well, we might start to believe them, to feel as though we're asking people a favor when we speak to people about the Lord Jesus, or to feel as though, well, this whole spirituality, Christianity thing works for me. It would be presumptuous to bother anyone else with it. But can you see, Jesus is God's rescuing king. He came to deal with our sin problem with God, to give us a new start. That message was verified by Zechariah, who predicted his coming. By the messenger, John the Baptist, who prepared the way. And by Jesus himself, as he came proclaiming good news, and came to be that good news. So if you know the goodness of that news yourself... Well, then let's join him. Tell of news that really is good. That God's king has come. And he has come to rescue. Now let's pray and ask him for his help to do that now. Let's pray before we sing. Our God and Father, we come before you this morning and praise you for your kindness in sending Jesus. And sending him to rescue us by dying on a cross. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that though you lived a perfect life, that you would bear the good and right consequences of all our rebellion against God, of our sin, on your own shoulders. Help us, please, to appreciate that and to enjoy that good news of rescue this morning and to see it and to treat it as good, world-changing news as it really is. And we ask, Lord, that even today, someone would come to see that good news as being really good for them, perhaps for the very first time, and receive your extraordinary mercy. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.